You're listening to the Redeemer London podcast. For more information, visit our website at redeemerlondon.org. Thank you very much. Great. I mean, it's been great this morning, hasn't it, that we have learned about a God who is with us in the storm and working in our lives, even if it's really hard. God is so gracious, and hopefully I am going to continue to um, show that through what I'm speaking about this morning. If you're new, we're currently in a series in the book of Judges called Autonomy, which basically means self-governance, okay, doing what you see as right in your own eyes. And this basically describes the people of God at this time in their history. They have gone into the promised land. God has told them to possess it, but actually they're just living amongst the pagan people there, the people that don't follow God, and they're actually compromising on following God. And we've heard about these cycles that they've been going in over the last few weeks where they turn their back on God, God gives them into the hands of their enemies, they cry out for deliverance, and then God raises up a judge or a rescuer to deliver them. And over the course of the last few weeks, we've been looking at lots of the different judges, and today we're going to be looking at probably one of the most well-known judges, and his name is Samson. I'm sure many of you will have heard of Samson. I don't know what you think of when you think of Samson. Maybe it is his hair. Maybe it is his strength. Uh, Maybe it's that event that proved to be his biggest downfall and yet probably his greatest victory, the cutting of his hair by Delilah. Um, But actually, the story of Samson has a lot to teach us about the grace of God to his people who continue to sin and also points us to the need for a greater saviour. The story actually spans four chapters of Judges, chapters 13 to 16. We're just going to be dipping in and out of those chapters this morning to try and get an overall picture of his birth, his life and his death. But I would encourage you to read it all at home because it is a great story. It's filled with action an adventure. It would make a great movie. They've probably done that already. But anyway, it is a great story. So before we begin, let's pray. Father, we want to thank you for your word. We want to thank you that as well as recounting history, it is your story for us. And we pray that today you would speak to us, that you would encourage us, that you would challenge us, that you would guide us as we look at your word together. Amen. 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 If you've got a Bible, if you could turn to Judges chapter 13. If not, it's going to come up on the screen here. We're going to begin reading from verse 1. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. So the Lord delivered them into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. A certain man of Zorah named Manoah from the clan of the Danites had a wife who was childless unable to give birth. The angel of the Lord appeared to her and said, you are barren and childless, but you are going to become pregnant and give birth to a son. Now see to it that you drink no wine or other fermented drink and that you do not eat anything unclean. You will become pregnant and you will have a son whose head is never to be touched by a razor because the boy is to be a Nazarite, dedicated to God from the womb. He will take the lead in delivering Israel from the hand of the Philistines. 
And sure enough, after the angels visit, God's promise comes to pass. We read in um, verse 24, the woman gave birth to a boy and named him Samson. He grew and the Lord blessed him and the spirit of the Lord began to stir him while he was in Manahe, Dan, between Zorah and Estael. So, Samson's birth is unusual. Okay, he has the honor of having his birth foretold by an angel. And the only other time this occurs in the Old Testament is actually with uh, Abraham and Sarah. So it's a very significant birth. His parents, they're barren, they haven't got any children. And back then, they would have felt a lot of disgrace about this. They would have felt real shame. They would have felt hopeless, powerless. That is until this moment. And, you know, we have a God who loves to bring hope to the hopeless. He loves to do the impossible in situations that seem without hope. And here in the story, God enables Manoah's wife to conceive, to bring a deliverer for his people. It is a miraculous birth. And right from the outset, God has a calling on Samson's life. Verse 5 says, he will take the lead in delivering Israel from the hands of the Philistines. At this point in history, the uh, Israelites had actually become so absorbed with the Philistine pagan way of life that they were almost no longer distinctive in their own culture or faith. The previous oppressors, the Ammonites and the Midianites, they'd actually been really cruel and harsh in their rule of uh, the Israelites. And so it kind of provoked a fighting, retaliating spirit in the people of God. But here, the Philistines' rule was a lot more subtle. So actually, the people have become very passive, uh, very submissive to the enemy, and it was actually proving to be very dangerous. In fact, if we look back at the beginning of the chapter, we see that in this cycle, you know, the familiar cycle that we've seen time and time again in Judges where Israel turns its back on God, God gives them into the hands of the enemy, they cry out, and then God sends a judge or deliverer, we find in this story that something is actually missing. They're not actually crying out to God. There's not even a request for help. The Israelites are basically content under the Philistines' rule. And not only that, but they're allowing their oppressors to have a huge influence on the way they're living, on their values, their behavior, their priorities. And they're no longer standing out as the people of God. And I think this can be a challenge for us today, can't it? That it's so easy to adapt our views to the culture that we're in so we're not seen as being out of touch with the modern world. I think Pete was speaking about this last week, just being absorbed in our culture's thinking. We begin to compromise on what we know is right. You know, we find ways to justify our behavior and what everyone's doing it. Our vision can so easily become blurred and our conscience becomes seared as we see things time and time again and we become almost less and less shocked by it. I think TV can be a big shaper on our values. And I've got to confess, I absolutely love watching Suits or have loved watching Suits. It's sort of come to the end now. Uh, This is a legal drama series that's set in New York. And 
you know, people are regularly jumping in and out of bed together in, in the series, and they're turning to drink or drugs to de-stress. There's lies, there's deception. You've got to be a workaholic to make it in this, you know. And we can think, oh, it's just entertainment. But it's just so easy for these values, this way of thinking, to just seep in to our thought patterns. And we begin to see behavior through the world's eyes rather than God's eyes. Here in the story, for the Israelites, something needed to change or their faith was going to disappear. Um, If this was the case, God's salvation plan would ultimately be at stake. And so in order to fulfill his ultimate promise, you know, God's going to bring a savior through this line, he intervenes and he calls Samson to be a deliverer of his people. And he's to be dedicated to God and set apart as a Nazarite. Now, the Nazarite vow was explained in number six, and it basically meant that you would observe a special fast for several days or months to pursue a deeper relationship with God. But here, Samson was actually going to live under this Nazarite vow for his entire life. He wasn't to touch any dead bodies, he wasn't to drink wine or beer or any alcoholic drink, and he was not to cut his hair. They were sort of outward signs of an inward dedication to God. In a blurring culture of Israelites and Philistines, Samson is sent by God to be set apart, to be different, to be a saviour for his people. And I think we too have a call to be different. But the truth is, not many of us actually want to be different. You know, human nature often means we want to fit in. We want to be accepted. We want to be like everyone else. You know, often you have to face ridicule or criticism if you're going to stand out. But the world really needs us to be different. Um, One of my favorite films recently, I don't know if you've seen it, has been The Greatest Showman. It's a brilliant film. If you've not seen it, you should watch it. And it's this true story of B.T. Barnum, who is making a circus spectacle with people who are perceived to be a little bit strange, a little bit different. And um, his strap line to them is, no one ever made a difference by being the same as everyone else. And I think that is true for us as Christians, you know. We need to bring the difference that Jesus makes to our lives, to our homes, to our workplaces, to our relationships. And how how do we do this? We need to be full of the Holy Spirit. That's why we have a prayer team later. You think, actually... I just need more of the Holy Spirit with me. I need him to help me tomorrow when I get up and go to work. Well, they will pray for you. They will pray for you at the end of the meeting. We need to be those that are full of the Holy Spirit. John Piper, who's an American scholar and author, he encourages us, be so full of Holy Spirit joy, Holy Spirit courage, and Holy Spirit wisdom that you have the strength to swim against the current of the culture. That is what it takes to be a Christian. In this situation, God had called Samson to make a stand in his culture. 
And he was fully equipped by God. Not only had he had a miraculous birth and he had godly parents, but he had great physical strength. And it says that the Spirit of the Lord was at work in his life. You think, what a great start. What a great calling. What great potential for success. Surely in the light of this, all is going to go well for him. But actually, as we look at the next couple of chapters, we realize that Samson had many flaws. Let's have a little look at uh, Judges 14. I'm going to read from uh, verse 1. It should come up here if you've not got a Bible. Samson went down to Timnah and saw there a young Philistine woman. When he returned, he said to his father and mother, I have seen a Philistine woman in Timnah. Now get her for me as my wife. His father and mother replied, Isn't there an acceptable woman amongst your relatives or amongst all our people? Must you go to the uncircumcised Philistines to get a wife? But Samson said to his father, Get her for me. She's the right one for me. His parents did not know that this was from the Lord, who was seeking an occasion to confront the Philistines, for at that time they were ruling over Israel. He may have a great calling, but Samson has a great weakness, a weakness for women, beautiful pagan women. He sees a woman that he likes. He's not bothered that she is a Philistine and that God's prohibited this. He wants her. And his lack of concern for the issue of faith is also matched by his lack of submission to his parents. Really dishonoring. Back then, culturally, the parents would have made the choice, but Samson wants his own way. Verse 3, it says, get her for me. She's the right one for me. In his eyes, she was right. And this was the same attitude that was rife amongst the Israelites at that time. You know, despite Samson being physically strong, morally, he is so weak. He's unable to resist temptation, and he's governed by self. But God still uses him. You know, despite his obvious flaws, in fact, in the case of Samson, God uses his very weaknesses, his sexual appetite, his vindictive nature and his temper to bring about a confrontation between Israel and the Philistines. In fact, Michael Wilcock, in his book, The Message of Judges, he explains, the communities are so interlocked that even the Lord can find nothing to get hold of to pry them apart. He uses Samson's weakness, therefore, to bring about the relationship with this irresistible girl from which so much ill feeling will flow. God works through Samson's flawed character to make a rift between the nations. You know, God is working his plan to rescue his people. He's sovereign and not even sin is going to get in the way to stop his plans and purposes, which is just as well, really, because Samson makes some pretty poor choices. Not only does he disobey his parents and God in pursuing this girl, but when he travels to Timnah to marry her, he violates his Nazarite vow by killing a lion with his bare hands and then later eating honey from the dead lion, from the carcass, defiling himself. Then 
He holds a feast, which is true Philistine tradition before his marriage. It's basically a seven-day drinking feast or a seven-day stag party and violating another one of his Nazarite vows. He is becoming a law unto himself. At the feast, he poses a riddle to the Philistine groomsmen, which is actually a bet. And they cheat in order to find the answer. And Samson is furious. And this war begins between the Philistines and with Samson. Samson goes to another town. He kills 30 men to get the payment for the bet. In retaliation, they give his wife away to the best man. I mean, can you believe that? Uh, In retaliation, Samson torches the Philistines' crops. And in retaliation, they kill his wife and and his father-in-law. So in retaliation, Samson attacks them and kills many of them. His justification, well, I merely did to them what they did to me. He's not leading his nation in fighting for the freedom of his people. He's merely seeking revenge. Retaliation for what they have done. This isn't a a battle cry. Um, It's just a they started it response. Samson is proving to be both immature and vindictive. The violence intensifies. There's retaliation after retaliation. The Philistines take up arms. They make a camp in Judah to take Samson prisoner. And instead of defending Samson, the men of Judah, his own people, blame him for disrupting the peace. They reject him as their savior and judge, and they betray him. In fact, 3,000, it says, go to arrest him. 3,000. I think they realize the power of his strength, and they go to hand him over to the Philistines. No longer are the people of God rallying behind God's chosen judge to fight the enemy. You know, at the beginning of the chapter, the whole nation was raising up. When we get to Gideon, only 300 are willing to fight. By the time we get to Samson, only one is willing to fight. That's what we learn from this story, that actually God can save through only one. Once Samson is captured and bound in enemy hands, the spirit of the Lord rushes on him. He breaks free from the ropes that bind him, and he kills a thousand of the Philistines with the jawbone of a donkey. Maybe not the best uh, weapon for a Nazarite to use, but anyway, he's handed over to the enemy And he's freed by God to fight and be victorious. He may be flawed in character, but he is a mighty weapon in God's hand. Despite Samson's moral weakness, his wrong motives, his ego, his vindictiveness, God used him. And that's the message of Samson. God uses flawed people. God works in the lives of messed up, imperfect people. None of us are disqualified because of what we've done or the life that we've lived. This is God's grace. God can use me with all my weakness. God can use you. In spite of his weakness, God used Samson to lead Israel. He actually led Israel for 20 years, the Bible tells us. 
And we must think, surely after this time, he's matured. He's changed his ways. But actually, as we begin reading chapter 16, verse 1, we read, One night, Samson went to Gaza, where he saw a prostitute, and he went in to spend the night with her. Instantly, it's obvious that Samson is struggling with the same sexual temptations. And later in the chapter, Samson sees yet another Philistine woman named Delilah, and he finds her irresistible. How our eyes can deceive us. What do the Philistines do? They negotiate with Delilah. They make a deal. They offer her a great monetary reward if she can solve the biggest riddle of the story, the secret of Samson's strengths. So she nagged, she pestered him continuously, and Samson plays this deadly game with her, sort of pretending to reveal the secret, but actually he's just merely deceiving her. But she's a very manipulative woman. And because he's more concerned with losing Delilah than violating his relationship with God, the Bible says he told her everything. Read verse 19. It says, After putting him to sleep on her lap, she called for someone to shave off the seven braids of his hair and so began to subdue him, and his strength left him. His Nazarite vow had now been completely broken. But he's so used to compromising and getting away with it, he assumes that nothing has changed. Verse 20 says, Then she called, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. He awoke from his sleep and thought, I'll go out as before and I'll shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. The Philistines thought that the source of his strength was magic. Samson thought he was the source of his strength. Both were wrong. Why was he no longer strong? He did not know that the Lord had left him. What a haunting verse. Verse 21 says, Then the Philistines seized him. They gouged out his eyes. They took him to Gaza. Binding him with bronze shackles, they set him to grinding grain in a prison. What a tragic ending. He's left alone by God. He's discovered that without God, he is no longer invincible. He cannot stop the Philistines from gouging out his eyes. He cannot stop them from dragging him to Gaza, humiliated and defeated. He cannot stop them from chaining him to a millstone like a common donkey. He is alone, humbled, and blind. Previously, he'd been spiritually blind. Now, he is physically blind. It is a pitiful situation. He has been his own worst enemy. What a fool. We could pause here and think, surely the message of Samson is teaching us, don't be like him. Don't be lustful. Don't compromise. Don't be vindictive. But that's not what the story is ultimately teaching us. The gospel says we cannot overcome sin on our own. It's not about us trying harder. That's why we need a savior. The message of Samson isn't don't be like Samson. We are like Samson. 
whether we struggle with his particular sins or not. You know, if I misuse the gifts or opportunities that God has given me, using them for myself rather than for his glory, then I'm just like Samson. If I believe I can sin and get away with it, then I'm just like Samson. If I believe I don't really need God, that I'm fine on my own, then I'm just like Samson. The truth is, we're all like Samson. We struggle with sin. We're independent. We're selfish by nature. We need one greater than ourselves to save us. But the good news is, the story does not end here. Samson may be physically blind, but he can begin to see God. And there's no doubt that when we're in a dark, difficult situation, sometimes God can show us things that otherwise we're blind to. It's like we get a different perspective of him. God, in his grace, is still at work in the life of Samson. He's not abandoned him completely. In verse 22, we read, But the hair on his head began to grow after it had been shaved. I mean, why, why would you record that? You know, hair grows. Isn't that obvious? But the point is that the Philistines let his hair grow back. Rightly so. They probably presumed that once his Nazarite vow had been broken once, his consecration and his power was over. But this shows their narrow view of God. Samson's strength had not come from the vows that he had made, but from the God that he'd made them to. Michael Wilcock, uh, again in the, in the message of Judges, says, the Philistines knew nothing of the God who does the unexpected, whose strength is made perfect in weakness and who never breaks his word, that God had said that Samson would be a Nazarite to the day of his death. His abandonment of his servant could not be but temporary. The promise was bound to hold, however Samson might despise it. There is grace abounding to the chief of sinners. However bad the situation had become, there is hope. There is always hope. The final scene opens with the Philistine nobles gathered at Dagon's temple to offer a great sacrifice for defeating their enemy. And it is a huge crowd. There are over 3,000 of them positioned on the balcony roof. And I'm just going to read um, from verses 23 um, down, so you can follow it in your Bible if you want to. Now, the rulers of the Philistines assembled to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon, their God, and to celebrate, saying, Our God has delivered Samson, our enemy, into our hands. When the people saw him, they praised their God, saying, Our God has delivered our enemy into our hands the one who laid waste our land and multiplied our slain. And when they were high in spirits, they shouted, Bring out Samson to entertain us! They wanted to make fun of him. So they called Samson out of the prison, and he performed for them. And when they stood him among the pillars, Samson said to the servant who held his hand, Put me where I can feel the pillars that support the temple, so I may lean against them. Now the temple was crowded with men and women. All the rulers of the Philistines were there, and on the roof were about 3,000 men and women watching Samson perform. Then Samson prayed to the Lord, Sovereign Lord, 
remember me. Please, God, strengthen me just once more and let me get one blow, get revenge on the Philistines for my two eyes. Then Samson reached towards the two central pillars on which the temple stood and bracing himself against them, his right hand on one and his left hand on the other, he said, let me die with the Philistines. And he pushed with all his might and down came the temple on all the rulers and all the people in it. Thus he killed many more when he died than when he had lived. The Philistines had gathered to celebrate their god Dagon and make a spectacle of Samson and his god. To them, capturing Samson wasn't just victory over a man, it was victory over Israel's god. But God is not going to let his name be dishonored forever. Samson prays. He asks God for one more moment of strength. And with it, he pushes the pillars and he causes the temple to collapse killing more Philistines in his death and in his life. And not just Philistines, they're the lords and the elite and the rulers and the strong who'd all gathered for this great celebration. God uses Samson to demonstrate his ultimate authority and power. He uses the foolish things of the world to shame the strong. And because he's never been this weak, the Philistines have no trouble surrounding him. So when he pulls down the pillars, the impact is colossal. The weaker Samson got, the stronger Samson got. So true, isn't it? It says in 2 Corinthians 12.10, when you are weak, then you are strong. And since those who died with Samson were more than he had killed his entire life, the promise of the angel is fulfilled. He shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. The next time the Philistines appear in the Bible, it's in 1 Samuel, and Israel may be at war with them, but they're no longer ruled by them. So whilst it may seem like a tragic end, it was in many ways a victorious death. Samson was born for this reason. This was his calling to bring judgment on his enemies and in doing so, save his people. But his life and death are not meant to be our focus. We are meant to remember one greater than Samson. To see Jesus. He is the greater saviour. Who, like Samson, was betrayed by one he trusted for money who was abandoned by his own people, who was tortured, mocked, put on public display, who also chose to sacrifice himself and died with his arms outstretched, and like Samson, accomplished a great victory in his death. But in every way, Jesus is greater. Samson's pride led him to trust Delilah, In humility, Jesus served those who would betray him. Samson was captured and bound because he rejected God's rule and authority in his life. Jesus was arrested and killed because he surrendered his life perfectly following the will of the Father. Samson's victory in death was over a physical enemy. Jesus' victory in death is over a greater enemy. It's over Satan, over sin. Samson's victory was partial and temporary. Jesus' victory is complete and eternal. 
It is finished. Those were Jesus' final words. In Samson's death, he killed his enemy. In Jesus' death, his enemies were saved. Samson may have had a miraculous birth. He may have been called and chosen by God to deliver his people, but there needed to be a greater deliverer than him. Jesus is the greater deliverer. He is the great, the ultimate savior. He is the one who has overcome sin for us. Samson lived a flawed life. So too have we. But God is gracious to sinners. Jesus' death has delivered us from the power of sin in our lives. Despite our flaws, God can still use us if we recognize our need of him. Samson was victorious in death. When he was weak, he became strong. God can use our weakness to display his strength as we depend on him and trust him to fulfill all that he has called us to. I would love to pray for some people this morning. I'd love to pray for people who are aware of their own weakness, but maybe have forgotten God's strength. You know, we don't qualify ourselves for God to use us. (laughs) We just need to acknowledge our need of him. He loves broken, flawed individuals. He's always working through them in the Bible. When you read the stories, they're always messed up because it underlines the fact that it's all about his grace and his strength and his glory and not ours. So if today you're saying, look, I know I'm weak, I'm flawed, I'm messed up, but please use me, God, to show your strength, then I would love to pray for you. So I'm going to ask everyone to just close their eyes for a moment. And if that's you, you're saying, Lord, I am so weak. I know I've messed up, but God, I, I want to know your strength in my life. I want your Holy Spirit to fill me now. I'd just love you to put your hand up. This isn't for me to see. This is for you to acknowledge to God, yet, Lord, I need you. I want more of you in my life. Just like you to put your hand up now, and then I'm going to pray for you. God, we thank you that you have saved us. We thank you that Jesus' death and resurrection on the cross has delivered us from the guilt and the condemnation that sin can easily bring to our lives. We know our weaknesses. We know our flaws, our failings, our sin. But we are so aware of your grace and your forgiveness and your power available to us. Holy Spirit, would you strengthen us to live for you? to live lives that display you. Use us, please, Lord, for your glory. Amen.